0: God, we give you praise today for the joy and the peace that we have in our hearts, in spite of the difficulties that may surround us, in spite of the tragedies that we hear of and uh, sometimes experience within our own uh, circle of friends and family. Lord, you give us the rock to stand on. We know that The rock that was in the wilderness that the Israelites followed, we're told in in Corinthians, was Christ. And Moses certainly stood on the solid rock as he led the children of Israel through the wilderness. And so, Lord, I pray that our feet will be firmly planted in our faith in Christ, in our knowledge that uh, you are ever with us, no matter how difficult conditions may seem, no matter how high the walls of water may seem around us, Lord, you are with us and we give you thanks for that. We ask you to bless in a special way this morning and guide us as we study. And we ask that as um, other classes are meeting at this hour and as the second hour of service is taking place, that you will be empowering all that is done for the sake of your name. In Christ's name, amen. We're studying in the 13th chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 13, and I'd like to read beginning at verse 17. Now it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war, and they return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. As we have already noted, the Israelites in Egypt have been slaves for many, 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 many generations. And, and as far back as as they could remember as families, their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents had been slaves there in the land of Egypt. And so what did they know about warfare? Certainly they'd probably seen Egyptian armies marching by and they'd seen Egyptian soldiers here and there, but they had no weapons and, and they had no knowledge of warfare. Now, the shortest route by which the Israelites could have gone from Goshen to the land of Israel is very obvious. They would simply travel up along the Mediterranean Sea and to the north, right? And there were a couple of routes along there. There was the main route that went along the edge here. Then there was one that actually went up that little bump you see there. It was kind of a sand spit that extended out there. And uh, some actually think the Israelites went along there, but the evidence in the passage does not seem to indicate that at all. But the shortest way would have been up this way. Now, the main route from Egypt from Memphis in Egypt up along that shore and up through Palestine was called, or is called today at least by biblical geographers as the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. That portion of it that went from Egypt over to Philistia was simply called the way of the Philistines. So if the Egyptians said, well, I'm gonna go north, I'm gonna go up by the way of the Philistines, people knew which way you were going. You know, it's like saying I'm going up I-5 to Oregon. Uh, So we're going by the way of the Philistines, because the route, when it entered Canaan, took them through the land of the Philistines. Before it left that, went through Galilee and up towards the Sea of Galilee. Now, that would have been the shortest route. I mean, you know, straight to Canaan, maybe uh, 100, 150 miles at most into the land itself. But in those days, as far as we know, The Philistines, or the people who were at that time called the Philistines, were a very warlike people. And it was known that, by God, of course, God knowing everything as he does, that the people there would have resisted the Israelites. Had they tried to go through Philistia, they would have met fierce resistance on the part of these Philistine people. Now, if they are ancestors to the Philistines that lived in David's day, and and there's some question about that, but probably they were, they were a very warlike people. They had developed the use of iron early, even earlier than they had in the land of Canaan, apparently. Uh, That is, that the Israelites had. And they were very warlike and uh, a fierce people. And God knew that if they were to go up towards the land of Canaan and they were to run into these Philistines and this this battle army came out against them and they being a bunch of slaves with maybe a few weapons scattered here and there, you know, facing this kind of resistance, this kind of warfare, this would greatly dampen their enthusiasm for continuing the journey. And God says even in this passage that they then might turn around and go back to Egypt, return to the place from which they had fled. So, because that would be relatively secure. So God instead doesn't lead them that way. God will instead lead them south, almost diametrically in the opposite direction of that which they should have been going, deep into the southern Sinai Peninsula in order to avoid that clash with the Philistines. Now, of course, we can easily say, if God... Is able to part a big body of water so they can walk through on dry ground what's the big problem about taking this people through a few enemy soldiers you know is is that any harder could God not just cause the Philistines to say well welcome come on in go right on through or uh, could God not give them a miraculous victory in spite of the fact they didn't know what they were doing I mean, God did that several times for Israel, didn't he? Or he could just drop fire and brimstones on on him and wipe the whole crew out. Now, we have biblical examples of God doing all those things. So why couldn't he do that at this time for Israel? Well, of course, the answer is he could. (laughs) There's nothing he cannot do. It was that he wouldn't. And that's where it comes to, where the the rubber meets the road here. God knew that Israel was not prepared to enter Canaan yet. Israel had not had the 40 years of wilderness experience. They had not been either physically or spiritually, quote, battle-hardened. They had to have a wilderness experience. Now, the two years of wilderness experience would probably have been sufficient had they been obedient to God and gone into the land when he called them in. As a result, of course, they ended up with 40 years of experience, more than they had uh, certainly bargained for when they left the land of, of Egypt. But God had made a promise to Moses. When Moses was at the burning bush, you remember, God had said, I will bring you back here with the people. That will be a sign that I am with you. You will know that I am with you when you bring that people back to this spot, that is to Mount Sinai. So God had already made a proclamation and a promise. So Israel had to go to Mount Sinai. They couldn't go by the way of the Philistines, or they couldn't even go by the way of Shur, which is sort of that middle route that you see Uh, across here over to Kadesh Barnea, the way of Shur, the wilderness of Shur. They were going to have to go south, uh, deep into the Sinai. Uh, You know, today there are those who will say that uh, we don't really know the way that the children of Israel went. And that is true. We cannot prove it because we can't show where all these places referred to in scripture were located. And some will say that they did travel through farther north. But there is... Strong reasons to hold to tradition. And the ancient tradition, which goes back before the time of Christ, is that Jebel Musa, the mountain of Moses, deep in the Sinai Peninsula, is Mount Sinai. Now, when you consider the fact that Israel knew where Mount Sinai was for a very long period of time, which gave a great amount of opportunity for tradition to have firm, strong root. I, I would rather go with such tradition than with some modern scholar who's got some bright idea because he discovered what might be a camp out here in the wilderness someplace, that maybe this is where they were. And, and you know because some rock looks a little bit like a god or something, it, you know they take little things and blow them all out of proportion, in my opinion. Uh, to try to change uh, from the traditional understanding of Scripture. God was going to give Israel a wilderness experience. Jesus himself spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, tempted of the evil one before he began his ministry. The Apostle Paul spent three years in the wilderness before he was ready to begin his ministry. So Israel was going to have a desert experience. And they were going to be prepared. They were going to be battle-hardened, spiritually at least, before they entered the land of Israel. And therefore, they needed this time. And really, so do we. You know, you and I need a wilderness experience. And sometimes you may say, when am I ever going to get out of the wilderness, you know? That's the way Israel felt. But um, you, you and I have all read of individuals who came to know Christ and they were thrust into important positions within a few weeks of their conversion and, and they became burnt out and dropped out uh, a year later. We need to be firmly grounded and firmly rooted in God and in the faith before we're put into position where we're catching a great deal of the fire of the evil one. And so the wilderness experience is very, very important. God is leading Israel, I believe, in a southeasterly direction from around the area of Ramses, which you see up in the north part of the delta there, the city of Ramses, which is mentioned in scripture, to the southeast towards the city which you see out there where that one line begins, the city of Succoth. As they leave the Delta area, now the the Nile River, after it passes Memphis, forms several distributaries which fan out to form the Delta. And after you pass the last of those distributaries and whatever canals have been made off of it and move beyond that, you move very quickly from fertile land, moist land, to very dry land. I've mentioned this before, in Egypt you have a very, very stark contrast. Uh, You can literally almost walk with one step from black land to red land, which is what the Egyptians used to prefer to their country as black land, red land. The fertile, moist land and then the the desert, which comes right up to it. And so it is even in the delta area. The delta, of course, is flatter than the uh, part where the valley is carved out by the Nile itself. But they're moving out of that terrain into the arid terrain of the land which you see over there beyond Succoth, into that region through which, which, which separates Egypt from, from the Sinai Peninsula. They were headed in the direction of what the scripture, what Moses wrote is Yam Yam Suf, which means Sea of Reeds. That has generally been interpreted and translated as Red Sea. The passage tells us, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but the passage tells us that they went out in martial array, that they went out in battle order. That does not mean that they are an army. It simply means that they were organized, that there wasn't just a horde of people tramping out through the desert in in this gigantic, you know, milling group of people moving in who knows what all directions like a cloud of grasshoppers. They had been arranged apparently by Moses and Aaron into groups so that as they went forward everybody knew where everybody was and somebody wasn't getting lost in the in the crowd here and no one was losing his way. There was discipline in the ranks in other words. Considering the fact that these people were slaves Probably it wasn't all that hard to get them to be disciplined and organized because they were used to being told what to do anyway. And so if you have somebody tell them what to do, they would automatically obey, it would seem. It's interesting that this passage points out that Moses saw to it that the promise made to Joseph was carried out. Joseph had prophesied so many centuries before that God will take you back to the land promised to the family. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you go, take me with you. Take, take my bones, my mummy, uh, with you as you go. And Moses is here being sure that the promise made to Joseph is carried out. And the mummy is taken along on the journey. Remember, Joseph was mummified. Uh, so he was probably uh, hauled off in I would suspect, for the sake of a journey, a a wooden sarcophagus, probably not one of the big stone ones where they usually planted the pharaohs, uh, so that uh, he could be fairly easily transported along the journey. But what's interesting is they're taking him out now, but it's going to be 40 years before they can actually put him in the ground because it's going to take that long before they get up to Shechem in Israel and actually find that property and can put him under the ground. I wonder if anybody's looked for that <laughs> sarcophagus. They've looked for everything else. They keep finding things. Who knows? Well, as the Israelites are journeying to the southeast, if, if this map is anything close to what was real at that particular time, they, by the time they reach Succoth, they've traveled about 50 miles. Now we think 50 miles, that's really not all that far, but you have to remember they're walking the whole way. They don't hop in their Buick Electra and buzz on down the freeway here. They're walking, taking children, herds of animals driving this whole crowd. Must have been a pretty dusty experience, I would think, as they uh, traveled out across the dry region. Verse 20 tells us that they camped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. Nobody has ever been able to find Etham. In fact, several of the towns that we're going to be looking at here have never been found. That is, nobody has been able to identify that this is Etham. And, and Etham could have been simply a little village anyway, and nothing very, very significant. They were, however, entering a desert region, and, and that we can be pretty sure about entering into the wilderness itself. Now, what is really magnificent about this is that in verses 20 and 21 of this passage, we are told that God led them every step of the way with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Is it not interesting that God does not say, I decided to form this kind of a pillar of cloud," you know? And it was 5,000 feet tall and uh, 1,000 feet wide. I mean, God doesn't give us any of those kind of detail. He just says, there was a pillar of cloud, and by night there was a pillar of fire. A lot of scholars who study this have a real problem with this, especially the pillar of fire part. (laughs) Because, you know, they don't want any strange phenomenon going on here that are out of the ordinary. And I have read some of the strangest stuff about this, and I know (laughs) Dr. Walmark has too. I mean, I've read where they were somehow this volcanic eruption lined up with the way they were going, and so off in the distance they saw this stuff squirting up here in the night. They could see the fire, and so they were headed in that direction. And some even say it was when um, Thera erupted in the Mediterranean. Well, you know, one real problem about that is um, that's to the northwest, which is diametrically opposite the direction they were headed. So they would have to been looking behind and making sure they were lining themselves up as they went away from it, you know. Going the wrong way. Going the wrong way, yeah. And of course, we have no idea whether Santorini or, or Thera erupted at this time anyway. Uh, w- w- it was obviously a really a, a violent eruption when it occurred, but... Anyway, God was getting them miraculously with this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire uh, along the This was a supernatural phenomenon, and I hope nobody has any problem with that. God intervenes in the lives of His people in a very, very way. God is imminent. He's here, and He is at work. Uh, just because you and I haven't seen any spectacular miracles lately doesn't mean He's not really here and not really at work. And most of the Israelites had never seen this before or anything even like it before and it was absolutely marvelous to them. They might have been able to explain the pillar by day except for the fact it kept going in front of them all the time, but the one at night, real hard time explaining that one. But they weren't supposed to. They were supposed to keep right on traveling. You know, sleepwalk and that way you could make good progress. Well, the pillar of fire and the cloud led them almost all the time they were in the wilderness, but they did camp. They constantly camped. After this early part, they kept camping. And although the pillar of fire was there at night, they did, of course, camp and sleep and and do those kinds of things. But the fire was there, basically through the wilderness experience. That's how they knew where to go. And you might say, well, God must not have known where he was going because they sure wandered. And we might say that about our lives. I hope God knows where he's going, because I sure don't know, you know. I hope you don't feel that way, but it's possible. I think any of the Israelites who thought at that particular time that uh, he or, th- or she was involved in some kind of a insane adventure here, <laughs> following this madman Moses out in the wilderness, was reaffirmed in his faith as he looked and saw. It isn't just Moses this grand pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Obviously, God is with us. Now you and I do not have such a physical phenomenon, I don't think, to follow every day. We don't follow a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night. I think if we saw one, we'd be, we didn't know what to do, probably. But we are able to be reassured that we are following in God's way that we're not just a bunch of religious nuts you know chasing off after some weird idea but that we are on the true straight and narrow road to God's city because first of all we have the complete word of God in our hands and that ought to be extremely comforting That's why, for example, when when missionaries move out and begin to move into a a people group which has had no contact with the gospel at all and is basically an illiterate people group, they try very early on to develop a language system for them, a a writing system, and to get the Bible into into writing so that they can begin to get it for themselves. Very, very essential to giving them a sense of who they really are. And, of course, also we are part of the body of Christ. We have one another to encourage and support us and to keep reassuring us that we're not really a bunch of loonies. And then, of course, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it is the Spirit of God who has confession with our spirit that we are the children of God. And it's really hard to convince someone who doesn't have that what that really means to you. Like I made reference to this a week or two ago in, in contact we've had not too long ago with, with some Mormon missionaries. H- how do you really get them to understand that you know you're on solid ground? You know whom, whom you believe. You know what is right because of this inner uh, presence of the Spirit of God. They say, well, I've got an inner feeling too, you know, and they go off on that tangent. Uh, there isn't any way to convince someone who's never had the indwelling Holy Spirit uh, what that really means. You can give testimony to it, but they really can't understand it. But through the Word of God, through membership in the body of Christ, universal, and through the indwelling Spirit, we have a greater guide than even Israel had. Because what about the poor Israelite who was blind? Couldn't see the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night. But it doesn't matter what our condition is physically, we still possess this guide. Chapter 14 of Exodus, let's look at the first four verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihirath between Migdol and the sea and you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they're wandering aimlessly in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God is not done with Egypt. God has one final blow that he intends to strike against Pharaoh, against his army, against the gods of Egypt who are the ultimate target of God's thrust. Israel had been making a beeline down towards the entrance onto the Way of Shur. And certainly, Pharaoh got the impression that's where they were going to go, take off across the Way of Shur, out into the central Sinai, uh, on their way to wherever Moses was leading them. But It is interesting here, God says to Moses, tell the children of Israel to turn back. Turn back. The question is, what does back mean? Well, if our picture of the direction they're heading is correct, then back probably would have been either north or west. It could have been south and very probably was south, but south in the sense of curving back westward. So that Pharaoh became convinced because God helped him to be convinced that the Israelites were lost, that that they didn't know where they were going, that they were afraid of the wilderness, that they were being hemmed in the land. Pharaoh, as a result, would be emboldened to chase after them. If they were making rapid progress and moving further and further away every hour and it was going to be more and more difficult for him to move, eh, he'd just kind of feel like well, shoot, it's over with. Let's just don't worry about it. But now that they seem to be curving back and they're, being mo- they're moving closer back into the dominion that he had control of, well, maybe this is our opportunity. The gods of Egypt are now fighting on our side, maybe finally. And so he was emboldened to set out in pursuit. What for? Well, to wreak vengeance for one thing, uh, you can imagine what he'd do to Moses if he could actually get his hands on him. And then, of course, to recapture the slaves and to bring them back into the land to continue their occupation. Now, exactly where they went, we don't know. The scripture tells us. But the problem is we don't know where those places are or were. We're told that they were to turn back towards Piharath, Migdal, and a camp in front of baal Zephon. You'll notice on that map that way up to the north there, there is the term Migdal. Well, Migdal simply means tower. And the Egyptian frontier had many towers and other fortified cities. So the Migdal that's up there is simply one that some scholars feel may have been the Migdal. Because you see, it's up close to the sea. Interpreting the sea as meaning the Mediterranean as holding them in or or fencing them in, or at least nearby, nearby. The sea. The term sea could have referred to the Mediterranean. Certainly, they didn't cross the Mediterranean, but could have been one of the references to sea here as hemming them in. But it could have also been one of the lakes or the Gulf of Suez. Now, as you look at this particular map, Here, the Gulf of Suez is this arm of the Red Sea which stretches to the north and separates the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. It can be almost absolutely certain that the reference to the Red Sea does not mean the main body of the Red Sea down here. North of that, you'll notice there's a little marking there. That's a lake, or actually a couple of lakes. They are called the Bitter Lakes. North of them were a series of smaller lakes, several of them. Now, the Hebrew word for sea would apply to any of them because the Hebrew word sea just means a large body of water. doesn't necessarily mean salt or fresh or, or have any connotation relative to that. It simply refers to a large body of water. So somewhere along that frontier... Between the Mediterranean and the main body of the Red Sea, uh, these events take place. That's a very large area. God was setting Israel uh, up for a great miracle, and he was setting Egypt up for a final great disaster. In it all, God is fully in charge. He knows exactly what he's doing, and it was a matter of the Israelites of learning to trust and to believe that God knew what he was doing, and that if they listened to Moses, they were actually hearing the word of God. Now, what was the purpose, what was one of the purposes of all those plagues in in, in Egypt? It was to train Israel to believe in God and to believe the word of Moses, so that when they got in a position like this, there was a measure of faith. We're going to find as we read along, it was a very teeny measure of faith, but there was some. Let's read at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people, and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Egypt, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihirath in front of baal zephon notice that pharaoh's advisors have come back around while back they were saying to pharaoh if you don't let these people go we're all dead now they're agreeing with pharaoh we have really acted in a stupid way we've let these people out of our sight and out of their country know how, note how quickly greed returns <laughs> you know you may be scared to the edge of your uh, you know, to the point you think you're going to die or or total disaster is upon you, and then as soon as it all calms down, the normal human <laughs> ways just come roaring back. It's kind of like the foxhole conversions, right? where a person is on is is fearing being destroyed because all hell seems to be a broken loose overhead and all these bullets and and shells are whizzing around. Oh God, get me out of this and I'll serve you forever. And as soon as it calms down, why of course the prayer is forgotten in many instances anyway. And uh, the normal desires of the flesh return. And so it is with with Pharaoh and his men. Uh, They have let Israel go and now they're counting the cost. What is going to be the immense cost of trying to reconstruct Egypt after the disaster which has swept over the land with not only the Israelites gone, but a significant portion of the Egyptian population dead. It's going to be a long, long road back. And if we have Israel, we can facilitate that very quickly. I mean, they were looking at the fact that their wealth, their power, their comfort, was totally disrupted. But if they had Israel back doing the hard labor, that maybe that could be reestablished more quickly. So only a few days after Pharaoh has experienced the ultimate blow that God was to give him through at least the ten plagues and the loss of his own son, the heir apparent to the throne, the cry that went out through all of Egypt with the death of the firstborn, and now only a few days later, He's collecting his military forces to go out and round up these same Israelites and bring them back. You you would think to him it would be like pulling a viper into his bosom to do this. But it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It seems in the hardening of his heart it took away his reason too. Now, collecting his military force was not an easy thing. Because remember, the firstborn throughout all Israel has died. How many... Commanders of the army were dead. How many men of the rank and file were dead? How many chariot drivers were dead? How many horses pulling the chariot were dead? You know, firstborn. So it was no easy thing for him to reconstruct his military force, to put it back in battle array, to appoint new generals and captains in the place of the dead people, and to get his army underway. Scripture tells us he called out the chariot forces. Those, of course, were the tanks of that day, the, the rap, most rapid way to move. And, and in Egypt, that was a pretty good way to move because most of Egypt is flat and they had built bo- roads on both sides of the Nile River that ran you know, fairly straight, you know, followed the Nile, but nevertheless fairly straight uh, up the Nile River. And so chariots were a, a quick way to move, particularly a military force. And so he calls out his chariot forces and other army units as quickly as they could be gathered to join in the pursuit of Israel. Now, obviously, it was going to take the infantry a while to catch up with Israel because Israel had a head start. And even though he could move his, you know, force march his army, it was going to take a while. So the scripture seems to indicate that he gathered his elite royal guard mounted them on chariots and lit out after them on chariots because chariots could overcome the marching Israelites very quickly. He wanted to be sure that he got to Israel before they disappeared out into the wilderness while they were still in Egypt. In fact, if he could get his chariot forces there quick enough, he could move in front of Israel, stop them so his infantry could then catch up and they would be boxed in between the infantry and the chariot force. The last phrase of verse 8 reads that the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Now, if you have the King James Version, you'll notice that it says there instead that they were going out with a high right hand, which in Hebrew means that they were going out with confidence. They were not timid about this. They were going to plunge right out in the wilderness. They were not wandering aimlessly. They were not afraid of the wilderness. They were moving boldly ahead as God led them. And they weren't hesitant about following Moses. A high right hand symbolized might and strength. Of course, we've seen that, right? The power symbol that some people have used. Sort of what we're talking about here Uh, in in, uh, symbolism here. Now, since Israel was not skilled in warfare, (laughs) we might say, what are they doing this for? Well, of course, they were not trusting in their strength. They were trusting in the strength of the God who was in that pillar of fire. The God who had devastated Egypt. The God who had work great miracles. The God who was working his way into their hearts, individually and, and corporately. And that was their strength, and it was in that that they had the high right hand. This is, of course, where Pharaoh makes his big mistake. He doesn't understand this at all. You'd think after all this time, he'd be so fearful of the God of Israel that he wouldn't want to be anywhere near Israel or have anything to do with Moses and the God of Israel. But his heart is hard. His heart is hard. I suppose all of us have run into people like that, whose heart is so hard that anything you say and any experience you bring in and any truth you bring in, just plop. You know, makes no penetration, or at least seems to make no penetration uh, into that person, and, and people just plunge blindly to their own destruction, in spite of all the evidences in opposition to it. He's blinded by his arrogance and by his stubbornness. Ever run across anybody as stubborn as this guy, Pharaoh? Blinded, arrogant, proud. He's still not gotten over the fact that he's supposed to be the son of God. And he doesn't like being displaced by a God he can't even see, who is a God of a slave people. He just, he just can't shake that. And so he's leading his army straight to disaster. I mean, it's just like you've probably seen the, the drawings of the broad road that leads to destruction. You know, everybody's marching along, all of a sudden they just drop off this pre- pres- precipice into nowhere. And that's what's happening. His army's just gonna go to oblivion, but he has no idea that that is true. Uh, You would think he'd have some sense in the back of his mind that this is a dangerous thing I'm doing here. This may not work out so well, but no, he's moving ahead boldly, feeling that he's now got control of this situation. Pharaoh's lead units came into sight of camping Israel there at Baalzephon, And beyond Israel was the sea. And he said, I've got them. The sea is behind them and I am in front of them. They can't get away from me. The term sea, as I said, means simply a large body of water. It could be that it referred to one of the many lakes through there, particularly the large bitter lakes which are shown on there or of course, the Gulf of Suez, whatever it was, Moses called it Yom Suf, Sea of Reeds. Yom is used in the Hebrew Old Testament to refer to the Mediterranean Sea. It's used to refer to the Dead Sea. It's used to refer to the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake a whole lot smaller than Lake Shasta up here. So from that word, we can't insist that it be an ocean, or what we today call a sea. The term souf means reeds. If you go back to the second chapter of Exodus, you discover that Moses was put in a little basket and floated amongst the souf, the reeds, the papyrus plants of the edge of the Nile River. Those plants do not grow in salt water. So it could very well be that we have to be referring to a fresh, or at least no more than a brackish, body of water, rather than a salt body of water. Now, which is three and a half. And the reason is, of course, because there's no virtually no fresh water flowing into the Red Sea, and it's constantly receiving high uh, sun radiation, great evaporation, and they've discovered on the floor of the Red Sea there's this constant volcanic upwelling and that high salt content water is flowing in from the bottom of the Red Sea also. I am not saying that the Sea of Reeds does not mean the Red Sea. I'm just saying these are all possibilities that we need to think of. We could be talking about what's called Lake Bala, which is about where just directly east of where you see Toppenese up there. And then uh, Lake Timsa, which is a little bit south of that, or the Bitter Lakes, which are right there just to the southeast of Succoth. Uh, any of these could be that body of water. They are wide enough and they are deep enough that they couldn't have waded through them uh, to get to the other side. You, you've all heard of the, uh, those who think that the Sea of Reeds was just some little shallow, uh, swampy area and that Israel just tramped through it. And the chariots had a harder time because their wheels got stuck in the mud and this kind of stuff. But Israel was able to walk through it. Well, any way to explain away a miracle, I mean, we'll we'll take whatever we can get here. But any of these could possibly fit the scenario here. But one of the strong evidences for it being the Gulf of Suez, possibly right where you see that little finger, you know. You look at the Gulf of Suez, it looks like this, (laughs) you know, up at the top. Could be that little finger up there is the place where they crossed. That's uh, very much a possibility. Not that God couldn't part, He could part the Atlantic if He wanted to. You know? That's not a problem. Israel might have a time, real time, crossing Atlantic. Take, <laughs> take a while uh, to do that. But one of the strong factors favoring the Red Sea itself is the New Testament translations of this. In the New Testament, It is called the Red Sea. And it's referred to twice, once in Acts 7 and the other in Hebrews 11. And the Greek word there is eruthros. Am I saying that right? E-R-U-T-H-R-O-S? Sounds sounds good, okay. (laughs) Er Ereuthros, which is the color red. And so the actual Greek word for red is used there, not for reed or bush or plant or anything else, but the word red is used there. And it, it, we are told in Hebrews 11, by faith they pass through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. So that gives you know, a New Testament reference that seems to indicate that there is great possibility we're talking about the Gulf of Suez here. Now today, if you go to that part of the world, you will discover, uh, you already know this but I mean you'll actually see it if you go there, that between the Gulf of Suez and the Mediterranean there is a canal there. And we all know it's called the Suez Canal. right? The Suez Canal, which was built about 125 years ago by the French uh, through here, has no locks in it. It's a sea level canal. Ships just sail in from the Gulf of Suez, and they sail out the other end without ever being locked up or locked down. The whole, it's a sea-level canal. So what we're talking about is a, uh, is a very low-lying area here. And it's very possible the Red Sea penetrated further inland at that time. It's possible that the Bitter Lakes were actually a part of the Red Sea at that time. Uh, we have It's interesting, you look at these um, Bible atlases and, or other atlases, and quite often they'll say, ancient shoreline. Now, and they will show where a body of water was 100 miles or more inland further from where it is today. Because, particularly if there happens to be a flowing river, we know what happens, right? It keeps dumping its sediment and building the, the uh, delta further and further out. Now, there's no flowing water right here. But that doesn't mean that the sea line, that the seashore couldn't have been further inland here. So what we're talking about is a mighty miracle of God. Whatever body of water we want to talk about. They're not tramping through six inches of water a bunch of bu- uh, you know, through a bunch of reeds to escape. They are moving through a stretch of dry ground that God has created miraculously. Whether it be brackish water, fresh water, or the Gulf of Suez seawater, it doesn't really matter. The miracle is just as great no matter which we think it to be, or which it really was. Well, in the next passage, we're going to discover that Israel sees the enemy. And their first reaction is to say, Dear Lord, help us. Good reaction. Their next reaction is to say, Moses, you got us into this. Not a real good way to demonstrate faith once you've prayed a prayer to God. But next week we'll look at the actual event of God dividing the sea and Israel passing over.